The Letter. Written and directed by Daniel Ruiz Tyson. Episode 4. How you doing? We've got a terrific show for you tonight. David Caruso will be on talking about the 20th anniversary of the show that rocketed him to stardom, NYPD Blue. Tears for Fears will be playing live. Roland and Kurt, the boys from Bath, will be here in the studio. And Rogue Podcaster and South London Latte Ponce, Danny Ruiz Tizon, will be joining us via phone line from London to discuss his latest letter written to former girlfriend Miss Latin America, Stay tuned. Dear Miss Latin America, of all the people I am writing to, you are real. You still exist, I think. You are out there somewhere, in this city, this big city, full of millions of people, most accounted for, while others like me remain off the electoral roll as we attempt to piece back together our recession-frazzled lives. This is a city that, in spite of its size and its millions of faces, is still not big enough to lose yourself in when you never want to see someone again. You probably remain oblivious to the impact you had on me. You were probably unaware of this even when we were together. But our disastrous liaison changed me forever. It was only ever going to be a resounding defeat which finally pushed me towards the change. And my goodness... You really gave it to me. The change delivered to me in a large-headed body sculpted by the gods. It was a strange relationship. I'd known you for a few years, but had decided against the relationship you originally wanted from me and kept you waiting five years. But then I finally saw you again, and slowly, too slowly probably, things started to happen. From time to time... The hurt you still felt over that original rejection would resurface and occasionally it felt like you still held that against me. You energised me. You angered and frustrated me too. You could be a little insensitive too, once mocking a pair of my mum's glasses that I'd kept long after her passing that were in her hand when I found her. Big late 90s rose-coloured frames that you forget had been fashionable at the time of my mum's death. Neither staff nor customers at the South Lambeth Road Cafe we were always in together, that I still practically live in, were convinced I could hold on to you. Of course, given I never talked to them, except funnily enough when you were around as I sought to give you the misleading impression I was popular with the waiters, I don't know this for a fact. It was just a feeling I got. I hadn't wanted anything as much as this in a long time. You were an escape from everything that was going wrong. I just needed to know what it was like to win again when everything else had been lost. It shouldn't be this hard to make it work, you used to say to me. You were right, but you made it harder. I'd never known it to be so difficult to make something work. Trying to save our relationship was even harder than writing a little herd of radio series comprised of letters that illustrate perhaps how self-absorbed I can be. I think that's why I got so hung up on trying to save us. After being homeless for over a year, I finally moved into my own place at the start of 2010, living off an alleyway, 
right next to the cafe whose pool I couldn't escape. Its lattes almost share an equal billing with you in my affections. I would only stay in the flat for six months as the urge to move once more again brought to an end any hopes that I had entered a what was then for me rare period of stability. We were okay there for the most part while I had the flat, although occasionally things got a bit fractious. My rigid enforcement of a no-shoes policy beyond a tiny hallway probably didn't help. As a friend said, it wasn't so much a hallway as an antechamber. When you live in Lambeth's dog-stained streets, you can't be keeping your shoes on indoors. There are nights, even now, when, unable to sleep, I actually visualise myself falling into muck and I battle to push out images of dog-stained paving stones or the goal line on Clapham Common I used to scan for dog stalls as a small boy, watching my dad, in his indecently high athletic shorts, grow irritated with me as he waited impatiently to start my goalkeeper training. Even when you were in my bed at night, that gym-assembled body pressed up against me, there were times when I was still seeing these dog visuals. If I'd known how limited our time together was going to be, I'd have worked harder to rein in those scatological images. The no-shoes rule was always going to be difficult to pull off with you. You were the kind of active outdoors type of girl who wasn't phased by germs. You'd place your bag on a bus stop bench and then leave it on my bed and not think anything of it. I'd pretend it didn't matter, but no sooner had you left than those duvet covers would go straight into the washing machine. In retrospect, it was too small a hallway and you were too fiery a girl to pull off the no-shoes rule. I should have tweaked it a little, or perhaps held it back until I had a flat with a more spacious hallway where shoes could be removed at leisure. But as with so many things, I didn't wait. You walked through the streets of Lambeth in a straight line, as if you were simply strolling through Finchley or West Hampstead, walking through anything and everything. You refused to tweak your walking. That was unacceptable. You needed to remove your shoes indoors to be the woman I needed you to be. We were often on top of each other in that hallway as we simultaneously removed our footwear. It's quite possible that 30% of the damage to our relationship was done in that tiny entrance. By the time we'd got into the front room, we'd inevitably had a bust-up. I once had Lambeth Council come round to study the alleyway. It was Sod's law that it was the first time in weeks that the alleyway had been clean. I remember when I heard they'd be coming down the next morning. I went out there and was deeply disappointed to see the passageway was unusually spotless. I spent the night praying for the first time that the usual gangbangers with their trophy dogs would come and mess up the alleyway so that I didn't look stupid with Lambeth. There was nothing out there the following morning. If I'd been wealthy... I'd have probably approached dog walkers that morning and handed them brown envelopes stuffed full of money, like the one I handed that porter at Guy's Hospital to even out my dad's chest hair after his first heart attack, to walk their dogs outside my building. Though I guess if I'd been wealthy, I wouldn't have been living in an alleyway in the first place. If I was putting together my ideal partner from all my previous girlfriends, as well as your legs... I would take that fantastic blue nevus on your back that I would often study when we were in bed. I'd never seen anything like it. It was about three to seven millimetres in diameter, a slightly raised and smooth lesion with a plaque-like appearance, grey-blue in colour. I have since invested in an LED flash loop times 15 magnifying glass. 
the type which jewellers use, that I wish I'd had back then in order to have had a more detailed look at that Nevis. How I rue that missed opportunity. The NHS website sheds more light on your unusual marking. A blue Nevis is a small blue or grey coloured lesion of the skin with an appearance similar to a mole. They derive their blue colour from their pigmentation with melanin and relatively deep position within the epidermis. One theory of their origin is that they represent embryonic neural crest cells that have failed to migrate into the epidermis in the usual fashion. You love to dance. That was the Latin American in you, if I can for a moment stereotype you. That was always going to be a problem for me. I'm too serious for dancing. I mean, even if I could dance, I don't think I could find the facial expressions that would correspond to each specific dance move. An expert could probably teach me how to dance. I don't doubt that. But from what I've seen on TV and elsewhere, they never really focus on the dancer's facial expressions. Being able to get the facial expressions to tally with specific dance moves is important, surely. And I've got to be honest, I've just never felt the overwhelming urge to dance. I'm a low-key guy with a keen interest in dermatology who spent the bulk of the 90s convinced they were in tears for fears. I would rather know how to cut skin growths out of people with limited equipment and have long-running feuds played out in public with former bandmates than be able to throw shapes and pull extrovert faces that are far removed from my everyday limited facial expressions. And unless I could dance specifically like late 60s to mid 70s funk period James Brown, unless I could dance as well as that, well, I'm just not interested. You gravitate towards ladies with larger skulls. What is it with that, do you think? I don't know if it's a kind of value thing. Certainly, you know, post-recession. I mean, in these uh, hard times you used to have in less, you get used to eating less, spending right. less. You know, I don't know what it's like out there in the States, but it's been tough here. You, you live in less well, a smaller accommodation. You're wearing four jumpers because the storage heating's disappeared by midday. Your commutes get longer, you know. Right. And having a woman with a larger head, I guess, it fills a void, you know. Do you actively seek these big-headed women out? No, it, uh, it just seems to happen. I look back now and uh, the heads are there. Now, you loved her, but you're also honest enough to concede that you needed her in a way you hadn't needed anyone before. I could see that even then. But she was the wrong person. I don't think this kind of relationship would have happened at any other point of my life. It was, uh, it was a constant battle to like her as a person, and because of that, I, I came to dislike myself too. Right. I, didn't, you know, I didn't like that I loved her. I, I, I told her that once. And how did she take that? Obviously, she didn't like it. Who would? But, uh, you know, to be fair, she probably felt the same about me. The struggle to hold on to her, though, gave you something to fight for. It did. But, you know, I don't forget how alone I still felt when I was with her. I didn't understand how I could be with someone and yet still feel so alone. Latin America offered something new, something different. Yeah, she did. Yeah. Uh, it was a way out of South London for a start. You would visit her, uh, taking long bus journeys you'd never taken before, crossing yeah. the river to places you barely knew, Finchley, West Hampstead, Golders Green. Yeah, Every all those places, yeah. 
and all those areas, new sights and sounds into your life, and the chance of creating new memories away from the unrelenting streets of SW8 and 9. The new was a, was a big thing. I get the impression with you that everything was just about seeing an opportunity in everything and anything to find a way out of your life. You were desperate. I was. Do you think by only changing your environment that would be enough? That you didn't need to work on yourself? Is that why you kept moving, Daniel? Thirteen times in five years, according to my notes? It was never you. It was always the place, always something else. Never Daniel. In those new, fresh surroundings, I deluded myself that I might have a chance of escaping the melancholy that had held me since my uncle's disappearance in the spring of 2008. It was at my storage unit late one night, where, sat in my temporarily decommissioned office chair, that I realised I'd fallen for you. Unit 3248 was just down the road from St George's Hospital in Tutin, where Lopez was hooked up to machines and chemo bags in his final weeks. I'd often head down to 3248 in the evenings after visiting him, unlock it and open up boxes full of personal effects and wonder how I would arrange them if I ever found a home again. 3248 summed up my old life best. The instability, the moving around, my life in boxes. I'd been moving since my mum's passing, and I wasn't done yet. I knew, sitting in my chair, that I wasn't ready to be in love, and I also knew you weren't ready for me to be in love with you. But, despite the overwhelming evidence apparent early on that we were ill-suited, I had to tell you. We met the next day in Baker Street, on an unusually freezing cold early spring day, for which you'd chosen to dress as if it were already summer. As we walked through Regent's Park hand in hand, I told you of my feelings for you. We found somewhere to sit. You asked me lots of questions about how I knew I was in love with you. How could I be so sure? I answered them as best I could, while scanning the grass, doing my best to pretend I didn't care where I sat, and wishing I had the ability to just hover in the air. Just a little, not enough so that you would notice. There was nothing back from you, and there wouldn't be for months. When two people fall in love with one another at different times, seven months apart in our case, the person who's already declared their love, in this instance me, can't really repeat to this person they love them when they see them because they haven't had the love you two back from the other person. By throwing yours out there again, you don't want to feel like you're pressuring the other person. Ideally, you need those admissions to dovetail. There follows something of an interim period. You wait for the I love you back, wondering at what point, if it doesn't arrive, do you end things. So you find yourself pretending you never said it. But of course, you said it. That pronouncement of love continues to embarrass you and leaves you vulnerable. That's the situation I found myself in as I waited for you to catch up emotionally. I should have delayed my proclamation until I knew you were with me. It made the sign-off every time we spoke very awkward. One autumnal Sunday, I found myself keeping you company at a bus stop just off Marble Arch as you waited for the 82 bus to arrive. You kept looking at me with your big brown eyes in a way I'd never seen you do before, as if you had something to tell me. I asked if you were okay, but whatever it was that you needed to say, you weren't going to be able to do it in person. You were like that. Whether the news was good or bad, and usually it was bad, it was frequently communicated via the push of a button.
Later that night, a text arrived. It simply said that you loved me. From now on, I'd be able to end my calls with the love you until you would take it for granted. Emotionally, we were finally together. But the manner in which I had learned this disappointed. I'd been denied my own moment in the park. At times, this was a rather cold romance. The recession you write pulled your life out of shape like a Primark jumper after a couple of washes. Writing contracts fell through as you developed a severe block in the wake of all the losses. But you didn't stand still. You manned up. You returned to the office work. Working for bosses born after live aid. But somehow you kept going and somehow you kept losing. The nine to five jobs you took to get by ended as the recession took a hold of your life. If there was a competition for losers in the summer of 2010, you were the runaway winner. We probably didn't need a recession to break us up. But the financial difficulties I was running into on top of everything else certainly didn't help. In addition to everything else, you probably would have reviewed the no-shoes rule at that point and wondered whether I was really worth the hassle. It was a valid question, I guess. If that still wasn't enough for you to conclude you had to leave me, you might have then moved on to all my hand-washing and overuse of non-fragrance antibacterial hand gel, always non-fragrance if you value your life in South London, or my too low on the fork grip that never failed to infuriate you. Ranged against all that, however, was my formidable scrambled egg, my signature dish, much loved by you, which deposited extra credit in the bank and arguably prolonged the relationship in the same way my fascination with the skin tags in an ex-girlfriend's dad's armpits had. Channel 4's decision not to pick up the pilot of my comedy show not only called time on my TV writing career, it also effectively diminished my scrambled eggs. I started using basic range eggs to cope with the alarming drop in the money I was making. But whenever you came round, I'd go free range to maintain the illusion that I was doing well. By then, accustomed to the paler yellow of the cheaper eggs, stirring those elite luminous free range eggs was like staring into the sun and at times came perilously close to costing me my sight. In retrospect, all too often, you showed me that you were not worthy of the free range eggs. I learned, too, to be aware of what allergies a girl might have before I embark upon another relationship. Your gluten allergy put a further dent in my bank account. Gluten-free bread is not cheap. There were weekends when you came round that I find myself buying both free-range eggs and gluten-free bread. It would have been cheaper to have developed a full-blown drug habit. I knew I was not the man to keep you in the kind of bread you were accustomed to. But we kept going for a while longer. It might have been letting you know I wouldn't be happy if you'd got Rihanna's hairstyle that caused the first irreparable crack in our relationship. I'm a low-key guy. I didn't want to be walking down the street holding the hand of a girl who'd modelled her hair on someone famous, turning heads with the undercut quiff, sleek and shiny on top, shaved and matte on the sides, while the recession had kept me in my H&M 2008 autumnal range far longer than I would have liked. These people might have thought... Who is that badly dressed guy with the girl with the Rihanna hairstyle? No one was going to give me the time to explain that if the world had ended in 2008, I was doing okay. And it was not long after our Rihanna standoff that the fire happened. I want to go back to July 2010, the point in your recent life where you came closest to restoring happiness to your life. 
A year on from the death of Lopez, you and L.A. were poised to move in together. And somehow you had fought your way back to that point. Just to get to that point from where I was, had been, uh, it'd been one of the hardest things I'd ever done. At that point, I couldn't see myself coming back to anything. But was that happiness or excitement or was it escapism? Because from what I'm seeing, those foundations were very shaky. I wasn't happy, I guess, but I was, uh, I was excited about my life in a way I hadn't been for a long time. In your letter, you write that it was wanting her that kept you simply coping. It drove you through those defeats. Totally. Everything went into the girl. You were not putting any work into yourself. You knew you had stopped to grieve for everyone you'd lost. You'd lose her, too. You had a woman at her physical peak, man. She was, yeah. <laughs> and you didn't want to lose that. You were intoxicated. The definition in those legs was phenomenal. That was worth the cost of the free-range eggs alone. And then it all changed one Sunday night. It all changed, yeah. A fire. A cigarette carelessly discarded by a downstairs neighbor led to a blaze sweeping up from the basement, flat, and into her family's home. Did you know straight away that would change everything? I did. I remember being out with friends that night when I got the call. It was uh, one of those balmy summer's evenings that are hard to forget. As soon as I heard, I told my friends that I knew this would have a significant impact on me. I couldn't see myself winning from that night on. I could, I could sense that final defeat was coming. With your family abroad at the time on work, it fell to you to get the house boarded up. Within days, you'd taken an executive decision to extend the contract on your flat so that you could move your parents in with you temporarily, a choice you relayed to me rather coldly in a phone call at work. Having served notice on my flat, I was left with little time to begin looking for my own place. I'm not saying you made the wrong decision. I never did. But you made it the wrong way. You wanted me in your life, yet once again you had excluded me from a major decision that would have a huge effect on me. I began searching for one-bed flats all over again, but my heart wasn't in it. Your idea was to extend your contract on your present flat so that your family would stay with you while their home got fixed up. You suggested that in the meantime, I ought to get myself a cheaper studio for six months and once my contract was up, we could start looking again. I had grown up living in places where every room had a bed. I couldn't go back to that. Not again. I always saw a strong link between mental illness and eating on your bed, with a sink and a cooker visible from whichever part of the room you were in. Being able to spend time in a room I didn't sleep in was essential to what I recognised by then was my fragile state of mind that I was too afraid to tell you about. Incoherent thoughts and self-doubt plagued me. And so I made the decision that killed us. The decision that killed me. I moved into room 11. It was the worst decision of my life and one I had to work hard to forgive myself for. We continued to view flats for most of my time in the hotel, with the bulk of that pressure falling on me to arrange viewings. Until one day, as always via text, you informed me that you no longer wished to move in together. Any pretense that I was not broken finally fell away when I read that message. I suddenly found myself robbed of the excitement of secretly studying the hallways of each flat, wondering whether I had finally found the hallway I could get away with implementing the no-shoes policy in. 
I saw you for the last time, the day after Boxing Day 2010. I was late. That didn't help your mood. We finally spoke about Lopez, albeit briefly. I could sense even then you didn't want to go into any great detail. You said losing Lopez had changed me. That if it hadn't been for him and seeing the damage his loss was wreaking on my life, you would have left sooner. I was disappointed with you for so many reasons that day. 40% of the rest of the words you spoke to me over that lunch were to do with a dress you'd seen from a shop whose 2008 autumnal range still formed the spine of my wardrobe at that time, including this bizarre side-zip arrangement cardigan I was wearing at that fateful meeting which left my neck immobile. You had utterly ruined my life, but were talking about a dress. Yet I still wanted to buy you something for Christmas. I sensed it'd be my last opportunity to ever buy you something. Even if it felt to you, and maybe even to me, like I was trying to buy your affection. So I bought you that, knowing full well that one day you might be wearing it on your next date. Any awkward silences broken by you and the new guy swapping anecdotes that ridiculed your previous partners. The new guy would pretend to listen to your tale of the OCD-ridden guy who refused to have shoes in his flat beyond the hallway, while all he could do was visualise an early opportunity to remove that dress. She struggled when you lost Lopez. She didn't know what to do. She was not good like that. In in an effort to hang on to her, I buried the grief I felt for someone I'd grown up with. And uh, he was always there. I kept a big picture of him in the flat. My aunt had a picture of him in her place in Stockwell. There was a picture of him at his brother's. You know, he was everywhere. But you never really talked about Lopez until that last day. It was like some unspoken understanding we had, like we knew we were only together because of him and that if we talked about him, we'd have to acknowledge that the little that we had struggled to build would just fall apart. The first year after you went was difficult. I remember struggling to pack at supermarket checkouts having lost that extra pair of hands. My packing was all over the shop that year. Smug couples waiting in the queue would arch their eyebrows having completely forgotten that we are all born single. It was only earlier this year, having briefly relocated to Peckham, that my packing finally came together in a Liddles. If you can pack in a Liddles, in Peckham, you can pack anywhere. The cafe looked after me that first year. It gave me shelter, somewhere to try and make sense of things. I took long walks every day, averaging five miles, walking all the way down Lansdowne Way, swinging a right down Wandsworth Road, then a left all the way down Nine Elms Lane, a beautiful set of apartments I once promised my mum I'd be living in by the time I was 22, still hopelessly beyond my reach, taunting me from across the river. Then I'd walk all the way down to Battersea Park, do a circuit of the park and walk all the way home again. I once walked seven miles just to do a disastrous five-minute gig. I just didn't stay still, except in the cafe. I went to hospital every Wednesday night and tried to fix myself up. It was hard, very hard, but I went every week. That was the point in my life at which I finally started to see through things that I had started. It crossed my mind that within weeks of moving on from me, you might have got your Rihanna Quiff thing to consolidate your fresh start. But I knew that was no longer my concern. I just had to focus on getting better. I owed that to everyone who helped me. I owed it to myself. 
Losing you was like having one of those four-coloured big pens I started buying again after seeing my mid-noughties rhinoplasty surgeon using one. Except the blues run out. You've got the black and the red left, the green still there too. But you can't think of a situation where you're ever going to go green. All you can think about is that the blue, your best colour, has gone. Without the blue, that pen's as good as finished. It's the decade Tears for Fears spent without Kurt Smith. It's NYPD Blue without Caruso. You get the gist. My life without you felt like one of those pens. For a long time, it felt like I was still with you, or rather that you were still with me. But I didn't have you. You were in my life, except you weren't. It was like a bereavement, except I knew you were still somewhere in this city, behind everything I was doing, every thought I had. You changed me. The recession changed me. The disappointments changed me. I didn't go into what we had as the best guy, but despite losing, I came out a much better man. There were many things I did or felt I had to do to forget you. They never worked. I knew they wouldn't even before I did them, but I still did them, like a form of self-harm, and I got myself lost that little bit more. You were beautiful. I cannot dress up the disappointment of losing you, what it did to my ego. Latinas are proof that invading a country can be a good thing. They've got a bit of everything in them, a result of 500 years of every race on this planet coming together to produce a composite of the world's most beautiful women. At the time of writing, 13 Miss Worlds have come from Latin America, one of which Bruce Forsyth bagged for himself in the early 80s. No region can compete with those stats. I had hoped, like Brucey, I could have hung on to you for keeps, but it was not to be. You said you wanted me. You had me. Then you let me go. I don't doubt for one minute that you feel you had a lucky escape from me. Maybe you did. But things happened to my life in such a short space of time. Things that you were never able to understand or even sought to understand. No one will love you like I did. If I couldn't show it, it was because so much went wrong. And in loving you, I stopped loving myself. Goodbye, Miss Latin America. I did love you. Danny. In the letter, Inner US talk show host was played by Clay Lowe. The NHS website was played by Delia Ryan, with Daniel Ruiz-Tizon as himself. The engineer was Annie Lloyd. The music is by Ignacio Lothano. For more news on the letter, visit the blog, theletterofficialblog.wordpress.com.